Coach Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. On this episode of Celeb Savant, I'll be speaking to Nick Van Eed from the 80s band The Cutting Crew. The Cutting Crew are an English rock band formed in London in 1985. They are best known for their debut album broadcast and a hit single, I Just Died In Your Arms. Nick and the band have, throughout the years, released album after album and single after single that have consistently been successful throughout the world. Up next on Celeb Savant, we've got Nick Van Eed from The Cutting Crew. Where do we find you in the world? How are you doing and what's happening in your life? Well, I live in the uh, south of England, uh, very near the seaside. I've got two rescue greyhound dogs, live in an old farmhouse. It's been an odd couple of years for everybody, as we know. Britain has got back to pretty much crazy as normal. Um, the gigs are coming in now. Uh, there's a kind of confidence in people going to shows and so on. Obviously, most of my business I do is in America, and they're still pretty nervous up. We're getting gigs offered, but I, I speak to many Americans, and the nervousness is in a promoter wanting to spend money to fly a British band over, and then, God forbid, somebody gets COVID, and then <laughs> you, know, you get the whole, whole crew wiped out. So yep. back here, it's good. Um, I've just come back from Japan purely for a holiday, and there it was just... You know, so scared still. Every, I mean, they wear masks a lot anyway in Japan, yeah. bless them. And what, what a beautiful country. But yeah, t- no gigs at all there. Yeah, it, it's, we're getting there. Let's, let's just cross our fingers that nothing comes back to bite our bum again. Well, maybe not in our generation. Maybe let's leave it for the next ones. <laughs> I, let's hope, yeah. Yeah. First question is the name Cutting Crew. Why? What does it mean? Yeah. Um, so, when we formed the band, um, you know, you look for a name. Our band was formed from five, four guys who were from very, you know, one from Canada. One had been playing the big ships, you know, cruise liners. And Colin and me were like, you know, pub rockers. And so we all sat down and couldn't agree on anything. And I was reading an old British music tabloid called Sounds. And um, it was an interview with Queen. And they were talking, I think it was Brian or somebody was saying that they hadn't gigged for a long time. They were just making records. And he said, you su- I suppose you could call us a bit of a cutting crew, just cutting re- records. Yeah. And we thought that fitted because even though all four of us had probably played 10,000 shows between us, when we actually put cutting crew together, there was, there was no gigs. You know, we, were, we made a record. So we were the cutting crew. Let's take it all the way back to the beginning of your journey in the music industry, how that led to you forming Cutting Crew up to the present moment. So the hybrid version of your musical journey. It's great. I mean, I've been blessed with being able to have a well, a publishing deal all my life since I was 20 years old and probably nine or 10 record deals. But it all started way back when I was about 20 and um, I got uh, signed up by Chaz Chandler, who was the the legendary manager of Jimi Hendrix and, and the pop group Slade. Um, he saw me playing in a hospital pub where I was working as a porter. You know, I was pushing trolleys around. And within two weeks, I was playing in Poland, supporting Slade, just with my acoustic guitar. That went on to uh, Nick Van Eed, and then we, I got bored of just being a solo act. So I said to Chaz, please, can I bring my band with me? 
And he said, what are they called? And I said, um, band, band, drive, the drivers. So we had this backing band called the drivers who then went on to get their own record deal in Canada. Uh, we had a hit record over in Canada, hit album. And then the final part of the jigsaw was whilst touring across Canada with the drivers, a band supported us on the east coast of Canada in the in the province of Nova Scotia. This band were great. They were probably better than us, actually. They were called Fast Forward, and the guitarist just blew my mind. He was playing a guitar synthesizer. So that he was playing, like, keyboard parts, horn parts. Um, I remember the... Um, from the Human League. He was playing that on, on the guitar, and it just sounded like... I was looking for the keyboard player. So we met and I said, hey, if you ever, ever leave your band and if ever my band falls over, let's get together. And I think it was about a year and a half later, Kevin McMichael from Canada got on an airplane, flew to England and I met him at the um, airport and I said, where's your suitcase? And he said, this is me, just the guitar. You've been in the music industry a number of years. What keeps you motivated to keep going live on stage? Yeah, good question. I mean, sometimes... You lose your way. Sometimes life catches up with you. You know, you uh, have babies and um, move house. And sometimes, you know, the record deal. After we had the, the big hits in America, um, you know, I really did think that was it. Finally, I got my foot in the door where you have some power, you know, to start making a few choices of who directs your video or who uh, produces your album. And and we did. They, they'd give us a little go, but then... The record company were always hovering above us, always, you know, interfering. So when we finally got dumped by Virgin back in 92, I think it was, it was kind of a relief, really. You know, it, it had run its course. The band wasn't the same lineup. I had to find something else. And I went away and did some producing. I'm, I'm a, you know, I produced the Cutting Crew songs anyway with, mm -hmm. with great engineers. So I did some production. I was a very bad manager. <laughs> <laughs> People would say, hey, Nick, you know, you, you've got all this experience and all these contacts. And I'd say, okay, then I'll be your manager. And I was shit. <laughs> Why'd you say that? Um, I'm too soft. Also, uh, you know, a manager really, what, what the bands I worked with needed, they were already brilliant musically. So they didn't need somebody like me who could sort of help them with their songs, um, maybe, you know, get them in connection with, record companies and publishers, they needed somebody who was going to get them gigs and have these great plans about the way they looked and all that. And that wasn't my skill. And also managers, you know, the really good managers are thinking two years ahead. You know, they're thinking now, right, 2024, 25, we'll come down to, you know, Johannesburg and play a show or whatever. I, I can barely think farther than <laughs> next weekend. <laughs> But it's a good question. Um, I love it. I'm loving uh, the business at the moment. I think it's a, a really good, fresh, new way. I mean, when streaming came in, it was for us old guys. You know, it was a bit of an invasion where you don't sell many CDs now. And of course, you're making uh, new fans by Spotify and so on. And when it first started, I was very like, mm, you know, <laughs> stuck in stuck in my old ways <laughs> yeah but you know let's let's be honest you can listen to any song that was ever written you can find it out there the royalties are rubbish but i do think that the ability for anybody to access any kind of music is pretty spectacular
I agree. And I, I had this discussion with all the people I have my interview with, and I'm glad you brought it up. I love the aesthetic of holding a CD. I still buy my CDs. Yeah. I put my budget every month into buying CDs. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but last year, for the first time since 1990, in the UK specifically, there were more vinyl sold since 1990. Those are all making a comeback. But don't you find sometimes that with the streaming platforms, it takes away that journey of, okay, I'm saving for this. I'm ordering it online or I'm going to the store. I'm going to open it up and look at the notes, all those kind of things. Yes, you buy vinyls, I get the CDs. But for those people who have never experienced that, who are just focused on the streaming, doesn't it take away some of the elements of that, aha, I'm getting this and that excitement? What are your thoughts? Well, I can see the excitement in your face as we're talking when you, <laughs> when you tell the story. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. It takes away all of that, absolutely yeah. all of it. So I'm on your side. You know, the ability to unwrap it and what color vinyl was it going to be? What was the color of the sleeve? Sometimes on the old vinyl, remember, there'd be little scratched markings from the guy who cut it from the cutting room back in the day, yeah. uh, little messages. Also, when, when I do the artwork for CDs, you have to bear in mind that it's a quarter of the size now. So when you're typing all these lyrics in and saying, do this and little, little tiny comments and things, you can barely read them even on a CD these days, let alone the old days. So yes, it is a, it, the excitement of me going on a Saturday morning to buy the police. Uh, every little breath she takes, every little thing she does is magic. Sorry. I remember yeah. that morning, you know, pissing down with rain, the excitement of getting that seven-inch final. Yes, that has gone. So, yeah, I totally agree. But the flip side is, like we said earlier, it, my daughter, who's 35, you know, so imagine uh, one of her younger friends who's 20. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. Um, so when I when I say to them, look at this CD and, you know, look at the, the little bit here where I've written that, that they're like, what i don't care uncle nick you know uh, it's <laughs> things have moved on and as i say i t- i will tell you one funny story that i hope um the listeners like and if there's any musicians writers listening they'll like and that is that with spotify you know it's famous for the per play money is just atrocious i mean it's yep. just ridiculous unless you're dire straits or bruce springsteen you know clocking up hundreds of million plays than a young band who could have a number one in South Africa, they're still only going to get a hundred pounds, you know, mm-hmm. from Spotify because of that's the way it works. So earlier on, about four years ago, when it first came out, I was so angry with this. I said to Spotify, and I get millions of plays. I'm very lucky. I mean, millions. I said to them, I want all my royalties sent to me in paper form. <laughs> you know, the, the, the statements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I get a book every six months. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, with all the statements of everything. Yeah, <laughs> just, to, just to piss them off. <laughs> <laughs> that would make them do extra work. <laughs> Are you writing new music material as we speak for new releases? And what's upcoming? We've made seven albums over the years, less and all the best ofs, you know, but yes. um, seven original albums. Um, we recorded one in 2015 called Add to Favorites, which was my favorite album for years. Look, we had some brass, we had some girls. It was a song, an album where I dedicated each song to somebody who'd had an impact on me over the years. So mm-hmm. the first song is Jackson Brown. The second song is Otis Redding. Third song is Van Morrison, that kind of thing. So yeah. 
completely confuse the fans and critics because every song is completely different. But I don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, but then recently we had the privilege of being signed to a new label for one album and we recorded with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Mm-hmm. I've got it here. I know we're not, this is audio, but yep. there's the vinyl. So it's Ransomed, Healed, Restored, Forgiven. Okay. And uh, it's all of the 12 big cutting crew songs recorded with an orchestra. Oh, wow. Sometimes the big thing, I'm an 80 piece orchestra in Prague. And then uh, with the band, and then once uh, with me just standing in Prague with a microphone singing with them, which was at uh, 60 years old, that was a pretty special uh, feeling, you know, tingles. So, yeah, we're always making new records. From zero to a three to four minute song, what is that journey for you? Is it different each time? What motivates the lyrics? No, it doesn't get easier. Um, <laughs> you get better at it. You know, I think I do think songwriting is a craft. I'm a better songwriter now than when I was 20 years old. But that doesn't mean I'm writing better songs. You know, uh, when you're younger, you're much more spontaneous. And you don't have anything to compare it to. You don't have uh, the critics waiting to slam you or to praise you. You know, you just write from from your bile and your heart which is Died in Your Arms. Died in Your Arms was written in a day. I've Been in Love Before, which was, you know, a huge hit in um, Latin America. I think I wrote that in two hours. All the keyboards, all the guitar parts, uh, even the lyrics. And then something from Add to Favorites, Kept on Loving You, took me about a year and a half. (laughs) And I think it's a brilliant song. But it's so there are always different rules for everything. But, But to be more precise on my answer, I think that, the melody has to hit a certain bar. If it doesn't hit that bar, it just doesn't make the cut. And one of the things I find most frustrating is I, I'm never, ever envious of bands or singers having success. It's a tough business. But I hate it when a band has continued success with really ordinary songs, you know. And I think I wouldn't even have played that to my mum, that song, you know. <laughs> I, I don't care. People think I'm being big-headed here now, but so my melody has to be something that people go, "Wow, you know that." Then, then that gets ticked. Then we move forward. You mentioned a little bit, a little bit while ago about the comparison of comparing songs. So, do you find yourself when you're writing stuff now that you tend to compare it to the older stuff, and because of that, a song might not make the cut? No. In fact, one of the big criticisms from my fans, especially, has been stop moving forward. With the way you're writing, you know, okay. I want to because that's me. I'm 64 yes. now. Write an 80s album again. They'd love me to. So I think I will. I think it would be good to go back to the way I constructed the songs then, the lineup, you know, the four-piece band and the, and the synth player, you know, the way it was then. It, it would be fun to do that. But no, I never look back and go, oh, that sounds a bit like something. I mean, I remember a quote from... Um, Julian Cope from the band Teardrop Explodes. Yes. And he said, you know, you're writing a song. He says, the worst thing a songwriter can ever do is if it starts to sound familiar, if it's sounding a little bit like Hey Jude, keep fucking going. Keep fucking going. Because it might not end up as Hey Jude, but it might be as big as Hey Jude. (laughs) Yes, I like that. And you also mentioned a little bit earlier when you were talking about the record label and the people were sort of hovering over you, uh, a podcast that came out, a little while ago was with Anthony Anthony Phillips, who started off as the lead guitarist of Genesis, and then he went solo. And he was mentioning back in the day before computers that 
the uh, record labels were like, okay, you need to write like this, produce like this, because this is what we want. And with the advent of computers, he felt that released a lot of artists from that control. Your thoughts around that? I do find that pre-turn of the century, you would write a song at home and you could write a demo. You know, that old-fashioned word, the demo. Yes. Demonstration, I think it's short for. <laughs> so it could be scruffy, but it could be, it would have the melody, the tune, the, the, the lyrics, the, the, uh, the, the rough version, yeah? And you send it up and they go, yeah, I don't like that. I like that one. Yeah, that one's good. So that was the encouragement then to go away and spend more time and your money on it if you're an unsigned act or if you're a signed act, you know, then they put you in and you'd make that one better. If you send a demo now to a record company, they, they, they throw it back in you and say, well, what the fuck's this? You know, they, they want almost a finished record um, that they can go, we, you know, we take all the risk. We do all the hard work with our computers at home because we can. Nothing yeah. wrong with, no, I don't complain at that, but I do find it rather interesting that you'll give them the, the almost the, the finished work or they'll say, yes, thank you very much. Now we'll just make it better. Um, so I miss the days when you could you could sit down and you could literally you know you could go um, you know I'm in the town making making that up but yes. you put that on put a harmony put some keyboards little this and that send it off and then the record company would go I can see what you're getting at there. Yeah, okay, good. But if I sent that now to anybody, I mean, especially that, <laughs> um, it, it, it would get thrown back at you. So there's a certain, you know, it works both ways. Yeah. Performing live, what do you enjoy about that? Well, I've got a broken knee at the moment. Oh, so wow. um, at the moment, I've had to cancel over Christmas quite a few gigs. How did you break your knee, first of all? I wish I could tell you it was skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> We had some big snow over Christmas and yes. um, straight down, fell, smashed my knee. So. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope it gets better soon. But Yes, it's, it's getting there. Thank you. Okay. Well, I can give you an example of the craziness of a cutting crew uh, show from one end to the other. And that is two weeks ago with the broken knee, we played in Dusseldorf in Germany. Uh, 36,000 people. Me, uh, Holly from... To, uh, from Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Holly Johnson, yes, Holly, yes. Howard Jones, Nick Kershaw. It was about seven of us. Pyro, uh, the enormous stage, the catwalk, and um, that that kind of show. Um, in one, in two weeks' time, we fly to LA and get on a rock cruise down to Mexico. Um, three shows uh, on a big, beautiful boat, sunshine and tequila. So. These are the big, beautiful ones you get. You don't get them all the time, but, uh, you know, they, we still get them. The other end of the spectrum um, would be we play in Germany a lot. Germany is our biggest market for live shows. Okay. A very loyal audience, the Germans. Very, um, they just stick with you. They're, they're great. They keep coming. Um, but last summer, we played uh, trio shows. So Gareth, my guitarist, and me, and a keyboard player, Tom. And we would play on purpose chosen just to get back to that intimacy of being able to tell stories, mm -hmm. tell them why you're going to sing this cover by Led Zeppelin, tell them why you're going to sing this song that nobody's heard before. And that would be in like a beer keller 
in Germany in front of 150 people, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I try to keep it mixed. I love the, as you can tell, I love to talk. Um, I love the <laughs> performances yeah. where you just sit, you know, you just sit and just chat, speak yeah. slowly, yes. speak slowly and clearly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Telling the stories. Well, that's part of the life and part of the, where the songs come from is those stories and those journeys. So it's important for also the audience to understand that sometimes. So those smaller concerts or smaller shows, I think are just as important as the massive ones. Yes. And, and the one thing I have stopped doing is that there's lots of opportunities for band like Cutting Crew to play these uh, shows where you have like four songs on and off, on off, on off, on off. And you can't, you know, you don't have time even to say, hello, Durban, hello, <laughs> you know, whatever. It, yeah. It's just like there's, there's a guy standing on the side of the stage with a whip and a, and a watch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that I've stopped them. Okay. You've obviously come to South Africa a number of times. Your perceptions of the country? Oh, wow. I mean, well, we've, we've, it probably was the country under the most spotlight for, what, 50 years, you know, with all the changes that happened, yeah. with um, the remarkable changes, the bad days, the good days. So coming there, I mean, obviously, much more recently, was a privilege, Um I thought it was, I mean, if you start in Cape Town, you know, just one of the most beautiful spots on earth, full stop. I know there's still issues. I know there's still, in every government that seems to take control in every country in the world, it seems that there's always this ability for uh, the old bad ways to sneak back in. And mm. that's that's not uh, just you guys over there. So I'm aware I read a lot of geopolitics but I thought people were great. The crowds were great. Really, really generous. Because I, I, you know, I can guess you don't get hundreds of big, big name bands there all the time. Yeah. I'm sure you're on the circuit. So we really were made to feel special. Johannesburg was especially good for me. I walked, Gareth and I walked around as deep and deep as we could and wanted to. And I, you know, back into Old Town with the old, um, almost like New Orleans buildings and things. Mm. Yeah, it was. I felt. I felt. I hope it's not inappropriate to say this, but I felt safe. I felt um, good. I felt welcomed. And God, please book cutting crew again. <laughs> you say that, you know, because I, I am very much a person who likes to walk in that. And it was like, oh, you can't walk. It's not safe. And you know, like friend, I'm like, ah, I'm walking. If you walk with the intention of being safe and being strong, you'll be safe and you'll be strong wherever you are in the world. Very so, well said, Barrett. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot. I love playing this game. Now, I know if I ask you this question in two minutes, two days, 20 days, I know the answer will be different each time. And I recognize that. So if I had to ask you your top five songs by other artists in this moment, what would they be? Woo! <laughs> uh, Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears. Yeah. What is and what should never be Led Zeppelin from Led Zeppelin 2. The best album ever made was um the color of spring by talk talk so let's say a track from that um life's what you make it by talk talk um because i'm very old and the second greatest album ever made was uh, crime of the century by super tramp so that would have to be let's say i think it's called school yeah school by super tramp okay and one more let's one get more. a modern band uh, gosh, <laughs> what have I bought lately? Adele, uh, to make you feel my love, the Bob Dylan song, um, because my brother died 10 years ago now. And, um, 
his daughter, Daisy, who is this little, well, she's a sensational young woman now, but back then she was, you know, a heartbroken daughter who lost her dad. And she said, I'm going to sing at dad's funeral. And I said, babe, that's going to be tough. You know, you're not even a singer, let alone all that emotion that's going on. She stood up and said, to make you feel, it was quite beautiful. So yeah, a special one. Nick, the podcast is listened to throughout the world. The main listening audience is the UK, the US, Australia, and South Africa's fourth, the last time I checked. (laughs) As a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? I'd like to say, with all of those places you've mentioned as the main listeners, you know, ours especially, um, I've had the privilege of living every single year of my life traveling, if not the world, then, you know, Europe, or if not Europe, around this country of mine, gigging. And I'm still doing it. Um, my voice is held up. I, I will tell you, I lost my voice during COVID. Um, not not from COVID, but I think a lot of the mind games that went on, you know. Yeah. And I really, really thought that was it, that I'd had my run. But it, it's back and it's fine. So there's nothing better than um, standing on stage and singing my old songs, singing new songs, singing a cut. Co- I love to put a weird cover in every now and again. Yeah. At the moment, I'm doing um, Ironic by Alanis Morissette. Okay, yes. To all those people, bless you. Um, thanks for staying with me and with Cutting Crew for 37 years. So this is Celeb Savant staying with Cutting Crew for 37 years and beyond, signing out. <laughs>